grateful to be in Webster today. Um, Pastor and Sister Hughes have made me feel so welcome, and I appreciate that. Thank you all. This is a very friendly church. If you didn't know that when you came in, you know it now. This is a very friendly church. I get the privilege of traveling to many different churches, and so I am an observer of human nature. And I will look out and I'll see the different faces, and, and, and some of them look like they've been eating pickles before they came. Um, but you all have smiles on your faces, and I appreciate that. I'm going to do my best to make sure that's that, that way when I leave this podium. So I do want to tell you a little bit about the Metro Missions program. Who here has heard of Metro Missions, Metropolitan Missions? A handful. Okay. So I want to tell you a little bit about why we have a Metro Missions program. I think uh, our presentation may or may not work, and it's okay if it doesn't. I've done that job so many times. I I hate to put pressure on the sound people because I know what that's like. Um, But Metro Missions was created by the North American Missions Division. Perfect. You guys are on the ball. Thank you. Um, It was created by the North American Missions Division of the United Pentecostal Church to send missionaries and church planters into densely populated urban areas. You guys are real close to Houston, so you know what I'm talking about. How many of you drive maybe 20 or more miles to work on a regular basis? I drove 28 miles one way to work when I lived outside of a metro area. Now, if you lived in Houston and you worked in Houston, you could probably do everything that you need to do in a four to six block radius probably wouldn't even need a car. So I can take my kids to school, I can get my groceries, I can go to work, all in that four to six, mile radi- four to six block radius, unless I want to go to church. Because chances are, there's not a spirit-filled church in my four to six block radius. And if I don't have a vehicle, that means that I use public transportation to get where I want to go. And so if I want to get on a bus and then take a train and then take another bus and maybe another bus, I can get out to a suburb where there happens to be an apostolic church that I want to attend. And you would do that because you know him, because you know the power of a relationship with God and his people, because you know what coming to the house of God does for you and for your family. And so it doesn't matter that it would cost you three hours of your time round trip to go to church in the suburbs. You would do it. But what if you had never met him? What if you've never heard about what this Jesus could do for you? Would you get on a bus to take a train, to take another bus or two? to get to a church that may or may not even be able to do anything for you. If we go to the next slide, the Metro Missions program was created to send a couple different types of missionaries, church planters, part-time Metro missionaries, full-time Metro missionaries, fully funded missionaries into the hearts of cities. If we go to the next slide, the reason is we've seen this population shift in the last 300 years. We've seen a population shift of, of having only 3% of the world's population living in cities to now, today, 80% of the 7 billion people on our planet live in cities. That's 5.6 billion people. And if you look at the next slide, the reality is if we don't take the gospel to them, they're not coming to us. 
If the millions of people who live in cities are going to hear the gospel, it's going to be because people like you and me took it to them. The gospel has to compel us to share it. How many of you have had a great experience with Jesus? How many of you have shared that with someone else? It's an awesome privilege and responsibility as someone who's encountered him in all of the truth of his word to share that with someone else. And so I am excited, if we go to the next slide, to tell you about my city. God is sending me to Quebec City. It's a beautiful place. I don't know how well you can see it up here, but this this tall building that's on the left-hand side of the slide is Chateau Frontenac. It's one of the oldest hotels in Canada. Uh, It served the rail lines as they were being built across Canada. Quebec City is uh, very historically valuable. Um, A lot of countries wanted to possess it. It was founded in 1608. sits right on the mouth of the St. Lawrence River, which is a major shipping channel across Canada. So if you were involved in business uh, through the 16-1700s, you wanted to possess Quebec City. You'd have to pass through it at the very least. And so the French built a wall around the city. And that always makes me smile and no one else understands. But I understand the promises of wild, wild cities in Scripture. You start talking about Jericho where God said, you know what, the enemy has had this land long enough time for the people of God to possess it. And all it took was the hand and plan and strategy of God to make that happen and to give that city to his people. Other walled cities in scripture are cities of refuge. Places where if I'm in trouble, if I've made mistakes, if I've lost hope, I can run to a city of refuge and find hope for a new life. Isn't that what the church is supposed to be? A haven for the hopeless. And so I'm excited to go to the last remaining walled city north of Mexico where Jesus is turning the enemy's territory into a place of hope and power. If we go to the next slide, the people in Quebec City are 95% of them are French speaking. Est-ce qu'il y a quelqu'un qui parle français ici? No? Good, you won't know if I make a mistake. Yes. It's 95% French-speaking. I'm about 90% French-speaking, so I've still got some work to do. Um, But 90% of these folks identify themselves as Roman Catholic. Did anybody here grow up Catholic, or you were Catholic before you came in here? Okay, there's some really great, hungry people in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church historically has done some really great things for for civilization, for people to, to serve in the community. And so there's this cultural Catholicism that undergirds the the Quebecois mentality. But what this really means is that 90% of the population checked a box on a census that somewhere in the past, they were affiliated with the Catholic Church. It does not mean that they have a relationship with God. It does not mean that they have a relationship with the church beyond a a family uh, uh, relationship. Church attendance in the Catholic Church is on such a decline in Quebec that they're, they're consolidating parishes. They're shutting down churches. In fact, when I was in Montreal in April, we passed a beautiful stone building, huge, gorgeous, gothic windows. It was a barbecue restaurant. Because the Catholic Church can't afford the upkeep on its buildings. 
church attendance is so low. So what a great opportunity to, to say, you know what, I know that your parish closed in your four to six block radius, but if you just want to meet Jesus, come on down to Le Sanctuaire Apostolique. We'll be glad to help you find him, know him, love him. It's a great opportunity. Uh, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. That just means there's an organization that says this is a really important city. We're going to keep it looking nice. It is beautiful. It's impeccable. The food's amazing. The architecture is gorgeous. If you've ever wanted to go to like 17th century France, but you don't have a time machine and you can't take the eight-hour flight, come to Quebec City. And then I can put you to work with your pastor's permission. So no ulterior motive whatsoever, but uh, I do want to just put that on the table, brother. I'll uh, certainly work through you for that one. It's the capital of the province of Quebec. And a lot of people have asked me why. Why? Why would God take someone out of the Midwest and send her to Quebec? It's cold there. I did not know the climate when I agreed to this. So uh, it is about negative 40 in the coldest parts of the winter. It's the fifth highest snowfall in North America. So I know y'all are signing up for the winter term to come see me, right? So why would God take me out of Illinois, where it's cold enough, in my opinion, uh, to go to Quebec? If you think about my home state, we have 12.8 million people. Just looking at the UPC, not saying we're the only spirit-filled people, but just looking at the numbers of UPC churches, that's all I have access to. We have 182 United Pentecostal churches. That's one church for every 70,769 people. There's room for church planters in Illinois. You start looking at the the Texas numbers. The state, not the district, but the state of Texas. You've got 672 United Pentecostal churches to serve about 27 million people. That's one church for every 40,000 people. As many churches as are around here, there's still room for church planters here in Texas. We need to reach these people. But if we go to the next slide, you look at Quebec. We've got 8.18 million people. We've got 18 churches and two preaching points. That's one church for every 409,000 people. It's the least evangelized part of North America. Not just by us, but by most Protestant organizations. And if you go to the next slide, Quebec City itself has 900,000 almost. And not a single United Pentecostal church. Yet. Because God is doing something. If we go to the next slide, I want to introduce you to some friends of mine. In the upper right-hand corner, there's a picture of a young lady with her head bowed and her hands raised. She puts me to shame. Her name is Sophie Omari. She got the Holy Ghost three years ago. She didn't grow up in this thing. She grew up in Belgium. She, she was Catholic. She came, immigrated. She, her family was Catholic. She wasn't actually religious, but uh, she immigrated from Belgium to Quebec. She works for the Belgian consulate. She's been Holy Ghost filled for three years. She's been a Bible college student for two years while working full time. She currently teaches five Bible studies herself because it's important to her that her city, where she is the only apostolic currently living that we know of, 
is one to Christ. Sophie Omari, keep her in your prayers. She's an amazing girl. Uh, And the folks that you see here are the product of uh, a team of people who've come from Montreal, a team of people who've come from uh, an hour and a half away from Quebec City is uh, Trois-Rivières, and those folks have, have also come to help us. There is a joint vision across the province of Quebec to see a church planted in Quebec City. And I'm excited about what God is doing. We're currently meeting on a monthly basis. In fact, we have a service this weekend. If you want to put it on your calendar to pray, 2 o'clock central, there will be a meeting in a community center in Quebec City. They charge us $19 an hour for a room that seats 150 people, Pastor. That's unreal. It's because God has opened the door. And when he does that, he tends to just take it off the hinges. I love to watch him work. If we go to the next slide, the mission very simply is to plant and grow a community of holy discipled apostolic believers that reflects the vast diversity of our city with points of connection in multiple neighborhoods. Quebec City is a, is a different city. It's, it's built broadly rather than tall. A lot of high-rises in cities here in in the States. Quebec City is built outward. And so it's important that we have points of connection spread throughout the metro area, not just in the central area. So this is going to be a different different type of church plant. I'm not working alone. If we go to the next slide, you can see my friends Scott and Leanne Grant are career church planters through the Metro Missions Program. They've already planted a church in Welland, Ontario, uh, and in Montreal. They currently pastor in Trois-Rivières, which is the, the closest city to, uh, the closest church to, to Quebec. And uh, they're, they're coordinating the monthly services. Eventually, they will back out of Quebec City as I, as I take the pastorate there. And with that, they will be able to plant churches in additional cities uh, between Montreal and Quebec. There are several cities that have over 100,000 people and not a single church. And so we're trying to reach that entire stretch where three-quarters of the Quebecois population live. If you go to the next slide, they told me that I have to do this, and so I'm just going to acquaint you a little bit with who I am and who you'll be sending uh, with with, with, uh, your prayers. So I have been in ministry for 20 years, and I know. I don't look a day over 21, so how is that even possible? Um, I started teaching Sunday school when I was 15 because my parents started a church when I was 13 in my living room. There were four of us pastors. It was my dad, my mom, my brother, and me. And we maxed out our living room at 14. So we went to a storefront, and then we rented a school, and then we remodeled an old carpet and upholstery place into a new church that still is there today. And I'm excited with what God's doing in Cape Coral, Florida, where my parents planted that church. Uh, In Florida, you would think, surrounded by Spanish-speaking people, I would take Spanish in high school. But I didn't. I took French, along with a very small group of students at my high school. Why in the world would I? I thought I was just interested in it, but God said, you know, I've got something later in your life that you're going to need that for. And what I've learned is that if I will just follow him in the small things, he'll order my steps for the big things and end up in places beyond what I can imagine. So I minored in it in college, 
for some reason in secular school, they don't teach you things like Acts 2.38 or um, how to worship in French. So I have some gaps in my education, but I look forward to filling those with language acquisition when I get on site. My background in education is in psychology and counseling, and I've been licensed with the UPC since 2010. If we go to the next slide, very simply, if you are wanting to be part of the excitement that is Quebec City, what I really want to ask you to do is pray. And I don't mean, I will take the prayer that says, Lord, help her not to freeze to death. I'm cool with that. But what I really would ask of you is prayer that negotiates for the souls of men and women. There's something unique that happens when, when someone gets on their face and begins to plead for souls that you will never meet. You'll never, you'll never come in contact with them. But you sacrifice your time and your energy to pray for them anyway. It gets God's attention. That kind of intercession gets God's attention. And so I would ask that you would pray. Your pastor has already made the decision that this church is going to partner with the Quebec City Works, so I thank you all for your financial partnership. I don't take that lightly. Um, I know it's an investment in the kingdom, but I, I, I promise to do my best with those funds. So thank you. Uh, if you go to the next slide, uh, if any, any cash offerings or anything additional uh, were given, it would go to... Uh, my immigration costs. It's going to be about $3,000 to cross the border with immigration attorney fees and such. So uh, the next slide just simply shows if you were on Facebook, um, this is the only time probably that you're going to be allowed to do this, but if you would get your phones out and go to facebook.com backslash Metro Missions Quebec City and like our page, you can follow what's going on there. So I'm going to have them leave that up for just a couple minutes. Uh, facebook.com backslash Metro Missions Quebec City. How many of you have been to Quebec, the province or the city? Awesome. How many of you now want to go to Quebec? Awesome. Okay. At least two more of you. Awesome. Mission accomplished. If you go to the next slide, very simply what we are trying to do is reach this province and this city for Christ. This is not about any other agenda but seeing lives changed and hope come into the lives of people who have lost it. If you would all stand, I think that's probably enough presentation. I'd like to share with you some thoughts from the Word of God. We're going to turn to Joshua chapter 23. We're going to start reading at verse 5, and then we're going to read verses 9 and 10. Joshua 23, starting in verse 5, and then 9 and 10. Thank you so much, Pastor and Sister Hughes, for letting me come and worship with you all tonight. I appreciate it. Joshua 23 and verse 5 says, And the Lord your God, he shall expel them from before you and drive them out of your sight. And ye shall possess their land as the Lord your God has promised unto you. And so this is Joshua standing up and reminding the people of Israel of exactly what God had promised them. This is the generation that has come after the folks who came out of Egypt. If you'll remember, Moses led a large group of the Israelite slaves out of Egypt. 
And in that process, they had a bit of a stumble along the way, and they were kept in the wilderness for 40 years. But this is the generation that God is bringing in to fulfill his promises of giving them the land. And verse 9, he reminds them, For the Lord has driven out from before you great nations and strong, but as for you, no man has been able to stand before you unto this day. One man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God, he it is that fighteth for you, as he has promised you. Jesus, I thank you for your manifest presence in this place. I thank you, God, that you are here to speak to our hearts. God, I pray for every heart, every mind, every spirit, that we would be open to receive from your word today. God, that we would be encouraged when we leave this house, that we would be challenged to live holy for you, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, I pray that you would be a blessing to these people, God. Let me speak according to your will today. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing for the reading of God's word. Uh, I am here to tell you that Jesus wants you to play offense. How many of you are familiar with something called um, football? I taught this a few weeks ago and somebody had asked about a big game that was played a couple weeks ago, evidently. And um, they were telling me the teams involved. And I said, are you serious? We have a team called the Panthers? I'm going to exhaust every bit of knowledge I have about football, but it's a great analogy for what I want to talk about. So uh, to, for those of you who, like me, know very little about football, I'm just going to spend a, few, a little bit on uh, the, the, the elementary items, right? Uh, the, the, the football itself, I think other coaches have covered what that is, right? We know what a football is. But at the end of each field, there are these, Um, locations called end zones and the point of football is that you get to an end zone right so that's is that the offense or the defense that's going for the end zone the offense so the offense is pushing down the field to reach the end zone why would they do that score what score points it's how you win the game, right? I know this is very rudimentary to some of you. I needed an education in this. So I'm, I, if I'm on the offense, my goal is to get from one end of the field to the other so that I can get into the end zone that I own, right? It's my end zone, and score the points that I need to win. What's the point of defense? To stop them, to resist the offense. Typically, I'm not thinking of any any uh, uh, extra ways to do this. Typically, is the defense out to score points. When you're on the defense, you're 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 not really trying to score. Yeah, there's the whole interception thing, but the point is simply to resist. And so, when I say that Jesus wants you to play offense. What I'm saying is that he wants you to be the one taking territory and scoring points. He doesn't want you to be so trapped in the idea of simply resisting. He wants you to be the one moving down the field. So going back to our story, when Joshua was leading the people 
let's, let's go back even further. So Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. If you think about that, that's sort of the kickoff, right? The ball comes down the field, and they are launched toward an end zone of the promised land. The place that God had promised Abraham all those centuries ago, now the people of Israel are going to inherit it. And it's a place of milk and honey, and it's a place of great blessing, and the fullness of this land is supposed to be theirs. But they hit a few snags, and there were a few flags on the play, if you will, that stuck them with a penalty of 40 years in the wilderness. So Joshua comes along, and he gets out of that 40-year penalty, leads them across the Jordan River into the promised land. Now, Pastor, they're on the right field. They're in the right place. And their timing is perfect. They are set to win this fight because it says that it's, it's the Lord that's fighting for them. And so keeping this football analogy in mind, if you will, they've come across the Jordan River and now they're pushing to the end zone and the Lord is clearing the field for them. First, it's Jericho that falls and city by after city after city is cleared away. The Bible even says that the Lord sent hornets to remove the people from the land. And he reminded the people of Israel it wasn't by your sword and it wasn't by your bow, but it was by his hand. And so they're coming down the field and it's being cleared for them. And then something very unique happens, something that you wouldn't expect. Now, Pastor, if somebody was clearing the field for you, how how easy is it to score a touchdown? If all the defenders are on the sideline, you just run. Right? You just run. That's all they had to do. They, they just had to advance down the field. But Judges chapter 128 tells us a different story. Because it came to pass that when Israel was strong, when Israel thought they had everything together, When Israel was convinced that the enemy couldn't touch them, when they were so enamored with their own ability to make progress down a field, when Israel was strong, they put the Canaanites to tribute. They taxed them. They enslaved them, if you will. They were sharecroppers. They had to pay a portion of what they had in their land to the Israelites. They put the Canaanites, the folks that lived in this land, to tribute, and they did not utterly drive them out. See, God had been in the business of clearing the field for them, and the Israelites made a decision that said, you know what, instead of, instead of them moving out or being eradicated, They're just going to be more valuable to us if we let them stay and we tax them. And so they took up the business of collecting taxes from people who never should have been left to live in the promised land. They put the Canaanites to tribute. They chose to make agreements rather than drive them out. They decided that their enemy was worth more alive 
than dead. Understand, they had just a couple generations ago come out of the land of their enemy. And they made conscious decisions to allow their new enemy to live in their land. And God had a few things to say about that. Judges chapter 2 begins with an angel of the Lord visiting the people of Israel and saying, I made you to go up out of Egypt, and I have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And this is the commandment he had given them in verse 2. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars, those false religions that these folks had. You should throw those down. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? And the Lord puts this out there. Wherefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your side. And their gods, those false religions, are going to be a snare or a trap to you and to your children. And that's exactly what happened. The Lord stepped back. He had been wiping out their enemy. But now, passage after passage after passage of the book of Judges says, and they could not utterly drive the people out. Why? Because they had made agreements. Because they had broken the commandments of God. Because God said, don't do this. And they thought they knew better. And the generation that made the decision to accept the enemy in their territory lived their whole lives with their hearts turned toward God. That's what it says. Uh, if you want to look that up, it's in Joshua 24:31. Their hearts were always turned toward God, but there came a day when those folks passed away. In, in Judges 2, verse 10, it says, Also that generation of Joshua was gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam, one of those false gods. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them up out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods. Where did they get these other gods? It's the gods of the people that were round about them, and they bowed themselves unto them, and it provoked the Lord to anger. go back one more time to my little football analogy. They were making time down the field. Their enemies were being wiped out one by one and they they started instead just shaking hands with these folks, letting their enemies stay. God had been putting them on the sidelines and they were inviting them back to the field. Does that, does that make any sense to you? And because they were back on the field, see, the, the enemy, as long as the enemy is in your territory, he is bent on, what's the defense's job? Stopping you, resisting you. 
and not just resisting, but isn't their job to push them back? So as long as an enemy is in your territory, he's bent on taking that territory back. Let's think for just a moment about a Christian's life. When I lived in the world, I thought like the world. I lived like the world. There were no parameters around my life. And I come out of darkness and I repent of my sins and I ostensibly am baptized and cross that river Jordan. And now I'm in a promised land, but I'm not quite to the end zone yet. See, there's a perfect will of God for every one of us. But we don't go there automatically. You're not saved and filled with the Holy Ghost and automatically inheriting the fullness of your walk. It takes moving down the field a little bit. And the Lord begins to deliver you from this and take this out of your life. And this promise starts to manifest for you. And maybe your children come to know the Lord. And other promises that God has made come into fruition in your life until the day. We start to question. Well, surely God wouldn't want me to give that up. It's, it's not technically a sin, but it's something that resists you moving forward. Maybe it's not something that's listed in the Ten Commandments, but it's a distraction for you. Understand that collecting taxes from people who don't want to be taxed is an arduous process. You've got to expend energy and resources to get this money back. Money that they don't want to give you in the first place. And so the tributary was a distraction to the people of Israel. There are things in our lives that are not sinful if they're done in moderation. But when we give ourselves fully to them, they become a problem, a distraction, a resistance in your walk with God. And can I tell you that when you let those things stay in your promised land, when you consciously choose that, just like the people of Israel, God steps back. All right. I, see, child of God, I, I have this plan that's perfect for you. This, this end zone of the promised land where I really want you to end up is designed just for you. It's your perfect path. But if you want to settle for less than my best in the promised land, okay. See, when they started making agreements, it didn't mean that God was going to kick them out of the promised land. He didn't say, all right, you didn't do it my way. You've got to go back to Egypt. He didn't say that. He said, all right, you want to live a whole lifetime of resistance? You go right ahead. But understand the consequences. Because what resists you today will impact your children. And what you accept in your promised land today may not take you out of it, may not drive you back out of your promised land. But your children will have no defense. What happened to the people of Israel was eventually the people of the Canaanites started marrying the people of the Israelites. 
Eventually, they had the same grandchildren. And it became very difficult for the Israelites to point fingers and criticize, so they began to accept those worldly lifestyles as their own. You can choose as a Christian simply to maintain the progress that you've made into the promised land. You can choose to live a whole lifetime of resistance. Or, if we come to a point of understanding that these little distractions that we're giving ourselves to are not really worth it, They're not worth the trouble and the hassle of trying to evoke value out of things that really don't bring value to the Christian walk. We can say to our God, who is still mighty, who is still awesome, who will still fight for us, God, I'm tired of this resistance. I'm tired of being sick and tired. I'm tired of living my life and not gaining any territory and not moving forward and not seeing the promises that you've given me come to fruition. When we begin to reach that point, he will again step on this field. And he will again take up your cause. And he will again begin to fight for you if you are willing to lay down those agreements. If you are willing to lay aside whatever value you have eked out, of this distraction. Is this making sense tonight? We have to be willing to say it doesn't matter how much it costs me. It doesn't matter if I lose the tribute money. What I really want is this piece of earth over here that all the promises of God for my life come to pass. That I begin to walk in the gifts of the Spirit that He's talking to me about. That the visions that He's put into place in my life start to come to fruition. And reality begins to change for me where I'm not fighting anymore. I'm not constantly repenting anymore. I'm living a victorious Christian life because God has put me in the end zone. If you would all stand with me. I believe that God is much more specific than I can be. So I've spoken in a lot of generality on purpose because I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what your distraction is. But he does. He knows exactly who you've made agreements with. He knows what Canaanites you've tolerated in your land. And this altar tonight is very simply a place of deliverance. Not, maybe it's not a big, gross sin. Maybe it's not something that you need to laboriously repent over. But, oh God, just fight my battle for me one more time. Take this distraction. Take this thing that's resisting my progress in you. This thing that I constantly struggle with. I'm bringing it to you and I'm saying it's enough doesn't matter what it costs me I'm done with it if that's your prayer tonight would you come would you just come to the front and make this commitment God 
I'm ready for you to give me the entirety of my promised land. I'm ready to inherit what you've promised me all along. And I'm done with every distraction along the way. Would Let us pray together. Jesus, we love you, God. I thank you for these people who are willing to commit everything to you, Jesus, no matter what the cost, no matter what the difficulty, Lord. I pray that you would loose them, that your deliverance would be in this house tonight, God, delivering us from things that are distracting us today. In Jesus' name.